I'll come clean and say that I'm a crazy multitasker. Um, I definitely am always doing more than one thing. I feel like it's a miracle that you guys have my undivided attention right now because I feel like I'm almost always doing more than one thing at a time. Um, and I had sort of like a like an aha moment about multitasking um, a couple of years ago, I guess now a bunch of years ago. So I mentioned already that I have four children and my middle two children are twins, um, are identical twins. When they were, I was, I was pregnant with them and then they were born and I was on bed rest and whatever, like they were infants and I felt like they were infants for a long time. And when I was finally ready to sort of get back to myself, I felt that I had to, um, I had to start exercising again. So I'd lost a lot of muscle tone, being on bed rest, whatever. So I had this idea of going to start exercising again. And we had just moved back to America. We'd been, we'd been living in Israel um, while I was pregnant with my twins. And I called a friend of mine at that time still in Israel, um, a very good friend who is a personal trainer. And um, that's what he lived in, he lived in Israel. And so I called him up and I was like, Sam, I need to, I need to get back I need to get back to exercising. You need to make me a plan that you know isn't going to be like isn't going to take up a lot of my time. I don't have a lot of time. You need to make me a plan. Uh, so he went through with me. He's like, you do this, and then you do this, and you do it 20 minutes a day, whatever. And I said, great, thank you so much. And then I, I made a mistake. I said, this is actually really great. Thank you so much because I just found a new Zafiomi class online, and I can podcast it and I can put it onto my iPhone. Um, and I can listen to it while I'm exercising, and like perfect timing because I found this Zafiomi class, and I got this exercise regimen, and it's going to be great. And and my friend Sam said to me, he's like, no way. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean no way? And he's like, no way. Am I going to let you take my exercise routine and do it while you're learning Zafiomi? Like, why not? And he said, well, what would you say to me if I said, well, you know, I'm calling you up so that you can recommend some Torah for me to learn, but I'm only going to learn Torah while I'm exercising. <laughs> what would you say to me if I said that to you? That's going to be, that's going to be my Torah regimen and I'm going to learn it while I'm exercising. Do you really think you'd be giving your full attention to Torah, you know, if you did that? He said, my, my exercise routine, I designed it for you. And, uh, sure, and it's a, it's a powerful exercise routine, but it requires focus. It requires your attention, and it's not designed to be done while you're doing something else. So I had to back off and promise him that I would do nothing else but focus on his exercises while I did it. Um, but I thought it was a really, uh, was really interesting, um, just a really interesting moment for me. It never occurred to me that either activity would be sort of impinged upon by the fact that I was doing together. I mean, everyone listens to something while they're in the gym, right? So if you listen to that, feel me, right? What's that? Um, so that that made me start thinking about it. Um, and of course, every once in a while, you get an article like this one, which I didn't give you yet. I think there people write about it all the time. Um, I'll intersperse our classes with these kinds of things. Um, this is this is a class that discusses multitasking, among other things. Um, but we're not going to focus. We're not going to call it multitasking um, in the context of this year. Um, but I do think it's interesting that there is some research being done that even those of us who think that we multitask don't really. Um, but the, the concept that we're going to talk about, uh, bless you, um, and again, I sort of, I already had this, you know, I had already been multitasking for years, I already had this idea planted in me by my friend that maybe you can always do two things at once, or maybe you shouldn't always do two things at once. Um, and there's a concept that we're going to be talking a lot about. Um, I'll write it in Hebrew and in English. Well, I'll try to write it. So, this is in Hebrew. How is it going to be so hot to everything? 
um, and I'll translate it as. Um, well, anyone want to help me with the translation? First. Is that one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah? Not one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. Um, if you are, I'll say, involved in a mitzvah, um, one who is involved in a mitzvah. Is exempt from it. Meaning another mitzvah. So if you're already involved in doing one mitzvah, you are exempt from a second Which you might call the opposite of multitasking. Multitasking is sort of predicated on the idea that there are lots and lots of valuable things to be to do. Uh, lots of things that you have to do, lots of things that you want to do. Maybe sometimes you're not sure whether you have to do or you want to do it. Um, and so the more you can do, the better. Um, and so since time is limited, the more you can do at once, the better in some ways. Um, that's, I think, the kind of core belief behind multitasking. Um, and Haosekhamitsa Panchamitsa is a, is a concept developed from the Gemara, further developed by Hazal, by rabbinic literature. Um, we're going to see it inside in a minute. Um, and the idea is that when you're involved in a mitzvah, you're exempt from a mitzvah. And it's a pretty, right, it's a pretty intense idea, like especially when you think about it in contradistinction to multitasking. You're doing a mitzvah. What could be more important than a mitzvah? Maybe something. So that's against multitasking, right? Well, it is. It is against multitasking, right? You're doing a mitzvah, and you could do another mitzvah also. But when you're doing a mitzvah, you're exempt from doing another mitzvah. And if you were to think about, you know, I asked you the top two things to keep you busy. So if I, you know, I didn't, but if you let your mind sort of expand that list of things, right, the things that you have to do, the things that you want to do, whether it's, you know, keeping your house or grocery shopping or whatever it is, um, or an entire, if you made like a to-do list. So you'd have a lot of things on that to-do list. If you think about it's vote as a to-do list, it would be a 613 item to-do list. That's a very long to-do list. That's probably even longer than my own to-do list. Right, that's a really, really long to-do list. Um, and it's maybe overly optimistic to think you're going to get through everything on that list. Uh, and in fact, shoot now. So the first source on here, you know, might be familiar to some of you with the song, Mishnah and Havot, in the Ethics of the Fathers. It bolted that in Hebrew and English. It's not up to you to finish the work, but you're not free to abandon it. Which either does or doesn't fit with multitasking, um, but I think fits well with the idea that there are so many things to do and so little time in the day. Um, so little time in the day, in the month, in the year, etc. It's not up to you to do everything, um, but you're not allowed to not do anything. You're not allowed to not accomplish anything. Uh, and so that means that you're going to have to find a way to balance, which I think is something that all three of you touched on a little bit, right? How to balance between the things you want to do and the things you have to do, the different things that you want to do, the things that you know are important. Um, you don't have to finish it, you don't have to do everything, um, but you have to do something. Um, and so the questions I put on here, we already talked about a little bit, are what keeps you busy? Um, and what are the activities that you feel you know can or can't be checked off your to-do list, um, either permanently or temporarily? 
And then I think is the question of priorities, which is, um, you know, if multitasking is one answer to too many things to do, so prioritization is another answer. Um, how do you think about, you know, what to do first, what to do next? Sorry, do you have a question? Um, right, how do you think about what actually is a priority? If you can't do everything, what are you going to do? Or if you have to do something first, um, what are you going to do first? Um, and that's, that's the question of priorities, which might be a different answer um, to the question than, uh, than multitasking. Um, but Osikimitsa Pazurman Mitzvah doesn't exactly tell you how to prioritize, or maybe, or maybe it does. If you're busy with one mitzvah, you're exempt from another mitzvah. So then how do you make a choice about what to do? Based on that rule, what does it seem like? Involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from doing another mitzvah. So what happens? You're doing a mitzvah, and now you have the thought that maybe there's another mitzvah opportunity that you could do. Could you, you should do, somebody else is going to do something, so then what happens? Well, life threatening. So if God forbid somebody is in trouble, you know, people are afraid of trouble, you can stop what you're doing regardless. This is, this is already a very boring answer. Sorry, tell me your first name again. Greta. Greta. So Greta is already like on the next level. Right? No, not quite. I think on the next level because Greta wants us to know, okay, I like your rule. Your rule is very nice, right? But I know about another rule, which is that things that are life-threatening bump everything else. Is that a good way to say it in English, right? Um, if something's life-threatening, then we, we leave aside other things. Um, okay, I agree, right? If I am doing one mitzvah-related thing, even though it's a mitzvah-related thing, um, if someone comes and says, listen, you have the opportunity to save somebody's life, I would 100% go with that. I agree, I think you're right. Why did I call that the next step? Um, I call that the next step because Osek Mitzvah Pesher Mitzvah does not reflect that, right? Osek Mitzvah Pesher Mitzvah means I'm doing Mitzvah A, and when Mitzvah B comes along, what should I do? So I can just keep going with Mr. A, right? Because Mr. B is going to do me a favor and define what you're talking about in this way that you will, that you couldn't let go. I'm just thinking. I will do you that favor, but it'll take me that four months. Oh, I can't be here tomorrow, next week. Okay, we'll talk about it. But yeah, but that is exactly the question, right? Or that is one of the questions. We need to know what we're, when we talk about it, how? When we talk about, being involved in one mitzvah, exempting you from another mitzvah, we're going to need to know what kind of mitzvah. Because um, we're already kind of burst our bubble, right? That it's for sure not going to be able to apply to every mitzvah because I know for sure that when you have a something life-threatening, that takes precedence over something that's not life-threatening. Yeah, there's also the question that you admitted to prayer. There's some points in prayer that you're not allowed to speak to another person. So the point of it is, are you obligated to speak to the person anyway because the person is paying the image of God? Or like in your life of God, there's some parts of prayer on Shabbos where you're sure. not allowed to but, speak. But that would support this one, right? You're involved in the mitzvah and you're exempt from another mitzvah. So if we can construct, you guys do all kinds of interesting, like, you know, uh, dramatic reconstructions in this class, right? So if we can construct a scenario where you're praying, and now you write, we'll call prayer a mitzvah, we'll put it in our general mitzvah category as yet undefined, um, and now another mitzvah opportunity comes your way. 
um, in some way that's going to cause you to interrupt your prayer. Okay, maybe someone who comes to you with the devil, what's gonna happen, right? Maybe you're praying ritual, and someone comes up to you, you know, they'd like a donation, and you're like, but I'm busy, right? I'm involved in a mitzvah. So, Osa Kamisa Petra Mitzvah would tell me that I'm not gonna stop praying to give money to person. Praying is a mitzvah, giving money is a mitzvah. Right, Osa Kamisa Petra Mitzvah would mean that um, that I wouldn't have to stop my prayer. Now, I feel like prayers are not like this because it's not going to work across the board, right? It's for sure not going to work across the board. Far from it. And I agree, it's not going to work across the board. And, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Gemara for sure knows that, right? The rabbinic sources for sure know that. Nonetheless, this is an idea that's formulated. We see it again and again in the sources. And we do, we do come down this way sometimes. We do sometimes say, that yes, this rule applies, and so you're not going to stop doing one that's done for another. We're not going to say it across the board, but we are going to say it sometimes. And what I think is so interesting about this, um, so if you said before that this rule sort of goes against the idea of multitasking, right? And I agree, it goes against the idea of multitasking. Maybe. Yeah, but, about that. but, but I'll just finish this thought. Um, but it does bring in the idea of prioritization. So I might read this and say, how am I going to prioritize? The mitzvah that I'm doing right now, that's priority number one. Any other mitzvah opportunity that would come my way would be a lesser priority. I wouldn't be able to jump into that one until I finish with mitzvah number one. However, as we've already pointed out, we're going to have other priorities. So to me, this is it's a first step in terms of thinking about priorities because what this first and foremost says is that if you're involved in a mitzvah, right, the very first thing I'm going to tell you you're not going to be able to automatically do is to do the second mitzvah. Right. Yeah. At least you're going to have to stop and think before multitasking and thinking about this rule. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe I should listen to this. So. Hmm? Well, so you're supposed to do two things at the same time. You're not supposed to do two things at the same time. Right. right. But there's a thing, there's a story I read in the letters to that class. So wait, before we get to stories, let's look at where this comes from. Okay. And then you can tell us some stories that contradict this. Um, I mean, for sure, you know, as I think, you know, you already implied, and I think we could all come up with stories where stories or cases, like I said, we can invent a lot of sort of dramatic scenarios where this is not going to work. And by the way, I'm sure there are many, many instances you can come up with, you know, just brainstorming your own lives at times when you have in fact done two mitzvot simultaneously. Anyone want to take a stab at number one? Can you think of a time when you did two mitzvot simultaneously? Okay, great. Right. So, I'm one of those you know, baby holders, and I'm getting totally one of my kids while he's down there studying. So, as parenting and studying to an assignment. Great, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can do, you can be welcoming guests while you're teaching the department, right? I mean, you, could, you could come up with a lot of scenarios, like I said, I'm sure, like real things have already happened, which you have done to mid-smoke. I would say not only have you done them simultaneously, but you've done them possibly both same time efforts, right? Or without expending a lot more effort for both. So this is the rule that we're going to have to unpack. Um, I want to spend this first class unpacking the rule and thinking about what it means, where it comes from, and why you would even have this rule. And I think it's so interesting that um, that the Gemara in, in coming up with this rule sort of prefigures this idea of multitasking and, and 
or at least thinks about this idea of the idea that there are multiple there are multiple codes on our time, and we're going to have to figure out. Like I said at the beginning, right, 16, 13 the code, that's a very long to do. So there's an idea very early on to solve that we a lot to do. And if we can't, um, we can't set priorities, we're going to be lost. I heard a share that uh, Dr. Lamb gave about this, and he said, like, we're sort of like never, like, we'd be wandering around with 16, 13 bits of what to do if we didn't have this rule to sort of give us some kind of fine code, some kind of guidance about how we would proceed. Um, so, for those of you who will be here for all four sessions, or if any of them you can make, in this talk I want to start by thinking about this rule. I want you to um, not multitask for a second, um, but instead get really, really focused on the Gemara for a few minutes, and think about um, where this rule comes from, how the Gemara comes up with it, and what it means in context, um, and then think a little bit about why, why have this rule? Like, what does it mean about our relationship to both to say that we have this rule? What does it mean to say that when you're involved in one mitzvah, you on some level don't have to do another Second and third class, I want to get to your point more, um, which is, okay, clearly this is not going to work in all cases. When would we and when wouldn't we apply this rule? And especially in the third class, I want to think about that in the context of, not just of like, prioritization of which is what you alluded to, right? Something sort of really, you know, maybe we hesitate to say it, but more important or more urgent than others. We'll see that in the sources. Um, but then also getting to this idea of concentration, of focus, which we have a word for that in the Jewish tradition. And you want to throw out a word for concentration or focus? Excellent. You brought up the example of prayer, right? So the prayer is And so there is this idea, right? Even without the idea of maybe have a concept already that when you're doing something or a certain thing, you need to be really focused, and that might also include the idea of doing something at the same time. So that's the, the middle two classes, the limitations and applications uh, of this idea. Um, and in the final class, I want to use Torah study, which you also mentioned, um, as a test case for applying this tool. Um, in terms of when, when you do and don't get to say, how is that going to be so when you do actually get to say yes, I'm busy with one mitzvah, um, and therefore I'm exempt from another mitzvah, and you don't get to apply that. I do have to talk about multitasking. Um, I think it would, in some ways, it talks about the opposite. Um, I'm not like a time management guru or anything, but um, but I do think that the Gemara and the sources that we're going to see myself have a lot, a lot of wisdom in terms of, um, I'll call it you know, the outside care, thinking about what you should be doing and when. And again, with the idea that even, even if your whole life was limited just to the sphere of the goat, and even if the only things you wouldn't allow on your to-do list would be the goat, it would still be a very, very long to-do list, and you would still need a way of setting priorities and figuring out what to do first. Um, so if you look at the first, not the first source, but the second source, the first one from Soka, um, on the sheet, um, this is the, this is the local topic of this idea of and I think we'll work through it a bit together because we're a small group and we'll be able to do that. Um, I started you off with a Mishnah. You have to, like I said, you know, no multitasking here. You have to get really focused on the Gemara and you have to put yourself in the mindset for a minute of Sukkot. I once taught Gemara Sukkot in the summer and nobody wants to hear about Sukkot in the middle of July, right? Because it's totally not where we're at, but I promise you it's coming in a few months. Um, so if you were thinking about Sukkot, and here's something you could think about. The Mishnah in Sukkot says, 
mitzvah messengers, people on their way to do a mitzvah, are exempt from the mitzvah of dwelling in the sukkah. And so too are people who are sick and those who attend them. And then underneath that, oh, I didn't label it, underneath that I gave you Rashi. Rashi specifically defines mitzvah messengers, shalfei mitzvah, as halfei baderech mitzvah, people who are on their way to do a mitzvah. Like you're going to learn Torah, or you're going to greet your teacher, or you're going to redeem captives. And exempt from sukkah, Rashi says, even when they're resting. So if you can, you know, again, sort of put yourself in a different mindset, you're on a journey to do a mitzvah. This is a multi-day journey with no hotels along the way, or right? no like place where you can put up your like inflatable pop-up sukkah. You're just traveling. So the whole time that you're on your way to do that mitzvah, you are exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah. The mitzvah of sukkah being to dwell in a sukkah during the holiday sukkot, generally speaking an obligation during sukkot. You're exempt from that if you're on your way to do it. So the question that I want to focus on most is why should that be? Why do you get to be exempt? Because to me, in some ways, this is just a way of saying, I'm busy. I can't do mitzvah X right now because I'm busy. And if I told you I can't do X mitzvah right now because I'm busy, what would you say to me? Does that sound like a good excuse? No. Yeah, not necessarily. And I think that that is how we react to people, by the way, even colloquially, right? Like if I called up a friend and said, you know, I have a great chesed opportunity for you. Um, you could, you know, help me with my uh, with my soup kitchen, right? And that's a really great mitzvah opportunity. And they said back to me, I'm really busy focusing on the mitzvah of tefillah right now. I call me back in a month. Right now, I'm really busy focusing on this other mitzvah. I might also say, like, that's not really a very good excuse, right? Why can't you do multiple things, right? Why can't you do both exactly? And that is that is, I think, uh, fundamentally the question about the Mishnah. Why does the Mishnah not just say? Deal with it, right? You're like on your way, find a way to do stuff at the same time as the code. It only happens once a year, by the way. We're not talking about um, a mitzvah that's like, you know, ongoing, okay, you miss it today, but you'll do it tomorrow over at the code. I mean, eight days, right? It's not, it's not a very big window of time to even accomplish something. Um, so here's what the Gemara has to say about it. Um, and I don't know how used to learning Gemara you guys are, um, but I'm going to ask you to bear with me and kind of um, like accept the journey as it happens. Um, does anybody else want to read, by the way? Anyone want to take a turn reading the Gemara in the language of your choice? Which one do we have three? Source number three. Yeah. I'll read it. Okay, go for it. From where do we know this? From what our rabbis taught? When you sit in your house, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, excludes one who is occupied with a religious duty, and when you walk on your way, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, excludes a room. Therefore, okay, great. You can pause there for a second. So, if you look at the verses, even if you just blend them in Hebrew, or maybe they're familiar to you from English, I think you'll find these to be somewhat familiar verses. Uh, but we'll back up even a step farther. What does the Gemara ask about this, about this statement of exemption from Sukkah? What's the Gemara's question? That's like a really pretty basic question. The Gemara just wants to know where do we know this from? Which is like a classic Gemara question. You have a statement in the Mishnah, you're exempt from Sukkah if you're busy doing another Mishnah. So how do we know? So did the verses that you read read it ring a bell for you at all? Or for anyone? 
These are verses from Deuteronomy. Actually, it's one verse from Deuteronomy. We should have the Vesach, that was the last of Father there. So it's from Shema, or from the first uh, paragraph of Shema. Um, and it's talking about, right, so it is good before it's not natural. Um, and it's talking about learning Torah, um, or teaching Torah. Um, and the, the question is, when do you have to be involved with, with, with learning Torah, with recitation of learning Torah?
The Gemara says the fact that the verse says you have to always do it, and you can read it, I'm going to read it the way the Gemara does, which is sort of with one sitting in your house and walking on your way, it teaches you actually what you summarize as always is always accept. You always accept for certain circumstances, which is classic in the Gemara. Right? When, what is excluded by sitting in your house and walking on your way and all the other things that you read? So the Gemara goes on as you read. Um, so now you can read the therefore. Therefore they said, He who marries a virgin is exempt from the obligation of reciting Shema. But he who marries a widow is bound by the obligation. How is this inferred? Rakhuna said, It is compared to the way just as the way refers to a secular way, so must every act be secular, thus excluding a person who is occupied with the preference performance of a minister. So we're going to focus on the way. Here's the way. How do you say the way in Hebrew? The deck. And who's, who's walking on the way? You, right? You, the left of the deck, when you are walking, on the way, on your way. So the implication is, and this is right, if you're sort of not used to the way the Gemara thinks, it's counterintuitive. It might be counterintuitive even if you are used to the way the Gemara thinks, right? Because as we were just told, really what the verse is having to tell you is that you're always obligated in this country, always, all the time, sitting, standing, walking, etc. That's that's what we'll call a, a shot reading of the verse. But the Gemara says, no, no, no. Fact that it says walking on your way, the left of when you are walking on your way. Your way meaning you're doing your own thing. What's the opposite of your own thing? God's thing, yeah. The opposite of doing your own thing is doing God's own thing. And God's own thing we call mitzvah. Uh, and so that's what we're coming to say, kidera, madera pursuit, afkol pursuit. La fuke So this phrase, when you're on your way, teaches us that, teaches us basically these two exceptions. Only when you're on your own way does it always apply. But if you're involved in a mitzvah, then you're not you're not just going along your your day, you know, sitting, standing, going in, going out, in your house, taking care of your children. Like that, maybe it will cut the mitzvah category, right? But anything that you would do that is just your own pursuit is the word here for optional. Okay, when you're doing something that is pursuit, that is optional, that is your choice whether or not to do it, so then the obligation, the sweeping obligation of reciting Shema, learning Torah, teaching your children, all of that applies when you're on your way. But if you're not on your way, if you're doing a mitzvah, then you have those exceptions. So a group is a subcategory in some ways of both Oh, you're doing a mitzvah, you're doing You're doing a mitzvah. So what, what mitzvah is the group doing? Getting married. He's getting married, and specifically he's talking about Kiyashma on the first night, so specifically it's been having sex with his bride. That's the mitzvah that he's involved in. So that's a special case. We're not going to focus. It's interesting why you need both clauses. We won't talk about that that much. Um, but the, the group fits into the Ohtik mitzvah category. You're involved in a mitzvah, and therefore you are obligated to mitzvah. Again, the Gemara takes this verse, which on the face of it means you're obligated all the time. I think that's how we use it closely. I think when you say Shema, or if you say those words in the Shema, 
Mishnatim and Benedictim are Kavamah, you're thinking about the all-encompassing nature of Torah, of teaching, of saying Shema. Um, but the Gemara takes that and says, well, it's all-encompassing, but it's only all-encompassing in kind of like your, your own life. When it comes to Mitzvot, this comes to show only a blessing Kavah there, only when you do your thing, that the obligation for Mitzvot kicks in. When you're already occupied in Mitzvot, that is the thing that you're doing. And then the obligation to say Shema does not forget. Yes? Which one do you do? Which one do you do? Which one did I do? <laughs> Maybe I should hold out. <laughs> um, I did both, but not at the same time. So she said the mitzvah of the groom is marital relations? Why? Yeah. The mitzvah of the groom is marital relations. So that's the mitzvah that the groom is involved in. Um, and so the mitzvah is exempt from a saying Shema. Right? And that's you know, for for uh, for your multitasking homework, right? That's a that's a uh, that's a Sigmund that's the Gemara Brachot talks about that case specifically. Um, so this is the Gemara source, right? This verse in the Shema, which again is meant to talk about the all-encompassing obligation of of reciting Shema and learning Torah. Um, the Gemara says, well, that teaches you it's only all-encompassing when you're involved in something that is reshut, that is optional. If you're involved in a mitzvah. The obligation to do, to let's say, recite Shema, does not kick in at all. You're exempt from that. That's the Gemara's first source. Um, is this verse that you read to us from Zidrah. Um And the Gemara sort of tests this a little bit. We'll skip a little bit here. The Gemara says, well, like, is that, is that really what it means? Which is a totally reasonable reaction, I think, because in fact, I don't think you would read that verse and think that's what it means, right? I don't think you read sitting in your house and walking down your way, and you would be then like, oh yeah, that means that there are times when I don't have to say Shema. That's not intuitively what the verse means, so the Gemara questions that a little bit. Um, but the Gemara agrees to it, um, and I'm skipping a little bit. On to the next page. Um, the paragraph that starts, does this mean that whenever a, mi- a man's mind is preoccupied, he is exempt? You see that paragraph? So do you want to keep reading a little bit? But does this mean that whenever a man's mind is preoccupied, he is exempt? If so, if his ship was sunk so that his mind is preoccupied, is he also exempt? And if you will say it is indeed so, did not Rabbi Abba Barzab do say in the name of the Rav, a mourner is bound by all commandments that are enumerated in the Torah, with the sole exception of Tefillin, because the word beauty was applied to them. The former, in the former case, his preoccupation is on account of a mitzvah. In the latter, it is on account of a secular event. Okay. So, no, you could call it there for a second, thing. So, the Gemara wants to know, okay, so, fine. So, you're not, you're not obligated in a mitzvah when you're involved in the mitzvah. Okay, fine. What if you're preoccupied with something that's not a mitzvah? The word that's used here is tirda. Um, in modern Hebrew, you say, or more modern Hebrew, you say tarud, that's the root that it comes from. Tirud is a mitzvah, the preoccupation of a mitzvah, we're going to keep coming back to this term. Um, so the Gemara says, well, what if you're preoccupied, but it's not a mitzvah preoccupation? Elizabeth, right? It's like that thing that you talked about, right? That you can be, have your mind pulled in all different directions. Could you speak a little louder? Sure, I'll try. Yeah, I'll ask them for a different space next time. So, Let's say you're preoccupied with something that isn't a mitzvah. So the Gemara wants to know, okay, what about that? And this is going to come back to, I said, we'll talk about this in a later class, this idea of kavanah. Maybe you should always be really focused when you do a mitzvah. 
Okay? Maybe, maybe even if you're preoccupied because the example they give here is that your ship has sunk. Okay, you're like a merchant marine or whatever. You have vessels floating in the seas, and one of them has sunk. So at that point, when you hear that that you know waves have overcome it or whatever, you're very, very distracted. Maybe that person also has sunk. And the says, no, 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 only tear to the mitzvah. In other words, this exception, and the exception for a groom and the exception for Osech the mitzvah, is because of a factor that we'll call, again, I'll keep coming back to the Hebrew because we will hear it again, but I'll translate it as well. Tear to the mitzvah, or mitzvah preoccupation. How's that? But not all preoccupation, only mitzvah preoccupation. So the groom is preoccupied with the mitzvah, and Osek for mitzvah, someone who's already doing a mitzvah, is preoccupied by that mitzvah. Somebody has that kind of question or. Yeah? So that's, that's the Gemara's thought about that idea, that it has to be a mitzvah preoccupation. Now the Gemara is going to change tax. I gave you a source for this idea, this very counterintuitive idea that you are. Exempt from one mitzvah when you're involved in another mitzvah. Specifically, the Mishnah didn't frame it in that big way. The Mishnah didn't use that rule. The Mishnah just, the mission just said, if you're uh, on your way to do a mitzvah, you don't have to keep the mitzvah of Sukkah. Uh, and the Gemara gave one source for that idea. And now the Gemara is going to give another source. Anyone else want to read the next source in the language of your choice? Otherwise, I'll just keep going. Okay, yeah, I'll read it to you, and then you can look it up and read it just from inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll read it in, I'll read it in both languages. Okay, I hear the pages turning already, so you can tell us in a minute what that's about. Gemara has a problem. If you don't learn Gemara a lot, you might not understand why this is a problem, but this is what we call too much of a good thing. Um, the Gemara wanted to know where you learn this idea from, that you're exempt from one mitzvah if you're involved in another mitzvah. And the Gemara gives you a perfectly good source. There was nothing wrong with the source. Okay, it's counterintuitive, that's fine. The Gemara told you exactly how to read it. The Gemara's problem now is that the Gemara has another source for this idea. And that's problematic. It, it's sort of weird in Gemara land. It's like problematic, it's strange, it's not right um, to have two sources for the same idea. Yeah, that's what? Uh, yes. That, so that's like, like I said, it's too much of a good thing. You shouldn't have two psukim, two verses, that come to teach you the same thing. Um, so that's the Gemara's problem. And the verse is, do you want to read us the verse in context? But there, but there were some men who were unclean by reason of a corpse and could not offer the Passover sacrifice on that day. Okay, great. Um, so they couldn't offer the, the Passover sacrifice because they were impure from coming in contact with a dead body. With a dead body in Jewish law, in part purity, you then can't bring a sacrifice, Passover, way back when, was all about the sacrifice, they couldn't do it, so what did they do instead? Anyone? Pesach Shem. Right, that's where we get Pesach Shem, the idea that there should be a second opportunity was because there were people who were, who were ritually impure and couldn't bring the Passover sacrifice. Now I cut out some of the discussion in the Gemara here, right, but as you said, David, the Gemara comes to the conclusion, who were these men, who were these people who came forward and, you know, by doing so gave us the mitzvah, the the new holiday of Pesach Shani. They were people who had dealt with a met mitzvah, right? Someone who died and there was no one to take care of the burial. Big mitzvah, right? I don't know so where you put that on your burial. So, so at yeah. that time there was no Purah Duma, or why, why weren't they? Uh, so great, great question. There is a way of getting, there, there, is, there was a way of getting rid of ritual impurity, but they didn't do it in time. 
that's what the Gemara talks about now. That the Gemara says the seventh day of their purification process coincides with the eve of Passover. As it is said, they could not keep the Passover on that day. On that day, they couldn't keep Passover, but on the following day, they could. Meaning, right? Like they just they just missed it. Okay? They were they became ritually impure, and they could they were purifying themselves. They were in the process. Paraduma was a whole process, a multi a multi step, multi day process, and they weren't going to be impure. They weren't going to be ritually pure in time to offer the Passover sacrifice. They missed it by one day. So possibly essentially with the Gemara's suggestion. Possibly someone should have done a little bit of advanced planning. I won't ask you right, how far in advance you start planning the Passover, right? at what point you start making lists about what you need and when you're going to clean what. But I, I promise you, I think if I went around the room, you would all tell me that it's more than a week in advance. Right? Can we all agree on that? Right? Mine starts right after prom. Right. So these people were super last minute. All of a sudden, they were like, oh my goodness, tomorrow's Passover and I'm ritually pure. Hello? Think in advance, right? Couldn't they just have said, Met mitzvah, right? And you'll tell me, great, because you already told me this is one of the biggest mitzvot, right? So maybe they should have said to themselves, oh, met mitzvah, but uh oh, Passover is a week. If I take care of the dead body now, right, if I do this burial, very, very big mitzvah, I will not be able to do Korban Pesach, also a very, very big mitzvah. Can I agree? They have no, they have no choice. You're obligated to, to bury a corpse. But you're also obligated. I mean, the Kohen is anywhere. But you're also I mean, obligated. But you're also obligated to Korban Pesach, and this was before the invention of Pesach Right, but you're if there's a corpse, you're obligated to bury the body first so before too. you do another mitzvah. So too. What? So too. Uh, I think the Shulchan Aruch says that. Ah, so the Gemara was written before the Shulchan Aruch, right? And so oh, it's the Torah, oh, oh, oh. right? So they're in the Torah, right? They're living in Torah land, right? And let's say in the Torah they know it's a big mitzvah to bury a dead body, but they also know it's a big mitzvah to do the Korban Pesach. In fact, what's the punishment for not doing Korban Pesach? You're saying, it's a decision? Yeah, it's Karian's decision, which is another way of saying, right, this colloquial phrase that we keep using that we're going to have to break down at some point, a big, big mitzvah, right? It's a really important mitzvah to do Korban Pesach, and I agree. Also a really, really important mitzvah to bury a dead body, right? So it's a slightly different situation than we talked about before. It's not a situation where you're on the way to do a mitzvah, right? You're on the way to do mitzvah A, and mitzvah B sort of comes your way. Different. You're thinking about, you're preparing for mitzvah A. You know that down the road, mitzvah A will come about. Mitzvah A, in this case, being Korban Pesach. But mitzvah B is right here, right now. So what should you do? So I feel like to David it's obvious, right? You have to put aside your preparations for the Korban Pesach and go ahead and bury the dead body. And that is in fact what they did. And you could say, sort of say, well, they were they were rewarded, right? Clearly they made the right choice because they get Pesach Shani, they get a second opportunity to keep Pesach. And that's more or less what the Gemara said. Um, Gemara said, okay, so, right, so they, they couldn't do it at that point. And that's another source for Osek Lemitzvah Pater Mitzvah. The Gemara is presenting this scenario of not being able to do Korban Pesach at the proper time as a proof text for the idea that if you're involved in one mitzvah, you're exempt from another mitzvah. Only in this case, how is the exemption working? You took care of the dead body. The person, you know, Rahman the person is dead and buried. It's a week later. But because of your involvement in that first mitzvah, it prevents you from being able to do that second mitzvah now. Even though you're not still actively involved in that first mitzvah, having done that mitzvah is what prevents you from doing the second mitzvah now. And the Gemara says, this is actually the source for for Osek, the Mitzvah, Pesach, and Mitzvah, this is the source for that idea. But remember I told you, on a meta level, the Gemara is not happy at all. Because now the Gemara has two sources for the same idea. So 
So the Gemara says it's actually necessary. Um, it's necessary to have bolsters because they're very different. I'll put the other one up there too. Um, Sometimes the ability to do two things at once 
or in very close proximity to one another, there are people who really enjoy that, right? Meaning it's like, it's kind of depressing in some ways. And fear of missing out, people call it, right? You're, you're doing one thing and you can't do another thing, that's like a little bit stressful. Much better to think that you're doing one thing and you could do the other thing also, right? That might actually um, make you happier about doing it, so that might actually be a better fulfillment of this. So they might kind of test this idea, um, but, but goes on to say that in fact, they keep repeating this idea again and again, one who's occupied with the mitzvah is exempt from performing the mitzvah. And that's actually um, in the paragraph after Rebbe Zerah, where it says that he's taught in a bright Rebbe Hanani ben Akkad said, scribes of holy books fill in and of their agents and their agents' agents and all who are engaged in holy work, including those who sell blue dots. What do you sell it for? Yeah, so it's a pretty limited uh, scope, right? Um, which we can see on those things. Um, so people who are doing those things are exempt from prayer and felon and all the commandments mentioned in the Torah, which upholds the words of the music. Lily said how often was that one who is involved in the you are not a fan at all, I see that. Uh, right, one who is involved in the mitzvah is exempt from it. And maybe, since this, this idea is like, right, it's, it's so crazy, um, but nonetheless, right, it, it goes on to support this, and then they, the Gemara finishes off on the left, this is the Gemara that I brought you, it's actually a story about the sukkah example itself. So we'll read this and then we'll go on to other things. Um, where Sista and Rabbi Baruchuna were on their way to the house of the Exilarch on the Shabbat festival. Okay, so they're, they're filling them because they're going to learn Torah, they're going to meet their rabbis, they're involved in a mitzvah, so they don't sleep in a sukkah. Instead, they sleep on the banks of the river, and they say, Anan Shukhan Mitzvah. Um, to read. We are mitzvah messengers, and we are exempt. These are rabbis traveling. This would never happen, I feel like, nowadays, that you would have rabbis traveling and saying, like, guess what, guys, we're not fulfilling sukkah, we're busy traveling, right? But that's exactly what they're doing. We're so busy traveling to see our teachers um, that we are proudly <laughs> not sleeping in the sukkah because we know about ourselves that we are shulzim it, so we are on our way to doing it. Um, so it's just to drive home the point to you um, that the Gemara really puts this rule out there as though it were something that you could really, you know, kind of, you know, sort of holds water for the Gemara, right? Most of the Gemara are going to Someone who's involved in the mitzvah is exempt from another mitzvah. It doesn't matter if you're actively doing the mitzvah and another mitzvah opportunity comes your way, or if you're just, you know, you're planning ahead and you know if you do one mitzvah now, it's going to prevent you from doing the mitzvah later on. This idea applies. Um, it applies, the Gemara brings in the idea of mitzvah preoccupation, okay? So when you're doing one mitzvah, your mind maybe is occupied with that mitzvah, and you might not be able to take on another mitzvah, as opposed to you're preoccupied in some other way, right, for some other reason. That, that's not going to cut it. But specifically, mitzvah preoccupation uh, is what does it. Uh, and so, in all these cases, doing one mitzvah is exempt from another mitzvah. And as I said, I want to think a little bit about why, which I guess precedes the question of this is never going to work, right, which I feel like is your question. If this is never going to work, but we'll say it differently, it's kind of a crazy thing, because I think the extent that I never thought about it before, you can tell me if you disagree, that had I not learned this Gemara, had I not learned these sources, I would assume that if you're going to give me 613 this book, I'm going to have to double up sometimes. I'm going to have to, right? Because there's just a lot to do. Um, and so it can't be that anytime I'm doing one mitzvah, I'm exempt from writing. And furthermore, as we also mentioned earlier, some of those mitzvahs seem to like go together really well. There are times when you 
could be parenting and learning Torah. You could be welcoming guests and also teaching them Torah. You could be um, you know, involved in all sorts of things simultaneously. I think that's something that maybe we instinctively like about this vote. It's like a system, right? It works kind of overall, it works well together. I mean, sometimes our attention is different priorities, but we hope that we can sort of live a life that's, that's synthesized, that feels holistic. Uh, and we want to think that we can integrate multiple things at a time. Um, so if those are the thoughts running through your head, then you're in good company because the, um, the Rishonim, the early commentaries on the Gemara, thought about this a lot. Uh, so I'll show you Toast Vote, and you'll tell me what you think about this. Um, these Rishonim, as I said, just provide different perspectives on how we're supposed to do this rule, and a little bit starting to think about how we're going to apply it, just in the sense of, like, are we for real here? Right? Are we really going to be able to take this rule and method? Um, so, Toto, building off this Gemara, this is source number four. Um, Toto, recap the of the Gemara, recaps Rashi, that's often what Toto do if you're not used to learning Toto, they are roughly 12th and 13th century um, grand, great grandchildren, grandchildren of Rashi, descendants, at least in the uh, spiritual sense, um, and they have a lot to say about comparing different instances of the Gemara with other different instances. Um, so here's what the Gemara is, well, here's what Tosfo says. Bithena. This is shopping. This being the idea of Osek Mimitsa Pachar Mimitsa. This being everything that we just learned in the Gemara. This is shocking. If you could do both at once, this man is so, whoever wrote this, right, so following in my footsteps, I feel like. So, like, you know, I feel like we're, like, on the same page. If you could do two things at once, why would you not? Why would you turn down the ability to do two things at once if you could? This is not an example you guys gave me, but I feel like this is a great one. Have you ever heard of someone saying, I'm busy, I'm wearing a seat. I can't possibly give tzedakah, take care of the sick, um, you know, give me some other mitzvah. How can I possibly do anything else? Here I am, I am actively wearing a seat. So Tosvo says, would you ever come up with such a case? Have you ever heard of a person who's wearing a wearing a seat, and says, up? Oh, my, my, mitzvah, you know, my, my capacity for mitzvah is maxed out right now. Why would you not say that? Why would you not expect someone to say that? What are you doing when you're wearing a seat or wearing a gun or any of those things? Maybe it's on prayer, maybe it's on God. I'll tell you one thing it's not on. Right? It's not on the wearing of the seat. That is not an act of mitzvah, right? That's a pretty passive mitzvah, right? The mitzvah is. What about the mitzvah of, I mean, you could play this game with negative mitzvah and it gets even funnier, right? Like that you would never stand for if your kids told you, right? Like, you know, no worries, like I'm actively not wearing shot nets right now. And I'm not wearing a wool linen blend, so like that is the mitzvah I'm fulfilling right now. Okay. I, I'm actively fulfilling the mitzvah of the seat, so I can't possibly be bothered with anything else. Chosuo says, if someone said that to you, you would laugh at that. You would think they were being ridiculous, and in fact you should, because Chosuo says, if you could do two things at once, you should. And this is the other part that I have folded. You're only exempt from your mitzvah at a time when you are actively involved. And lest you think that Tosfos is contradicting the Gemara, right? I'll take you back to the language in the Gemara itself. The Gemara says, Oh, thank the mitzvah. I just translated this earlier as involved in a mitzvah. Tosfos says, Oh, sekla, so for mitzvah, needs to be actively involved in it. So yeah, if you're actively involved in a mitzvah, then you don't have to do another mitzvah. 
But if your involvement in that mitzvah is passive, is I feel like passive is a very negative word, so I'm trying to think of something else. Um, it does not take up your your mental capacity, etc. Right? If it lacks mitzvah preoccupation, if it lacks tiered to mitzvah, um, then you can do two things at once. And if you can, you for sure should. And the example that Chosmo gives, I'll share with you. It's, I think it's really interesting. So it comes from the Gemara and the Zerim. Someone who takes a vow not to get benefit from someone else. It's, we'll play this out. Uh, I take a vow not to get benefit from someone. Why you would do that? I don't know. So you take a vow not to get Hannah on, not to get any benefit from someone else. It's like I'm really, really mad at you. And I take a vow. So what's your name? I'm sorry. Ron. Ron? Okay. So I take a vow not to get any benefit from Ron. Okay. But now I have um, I have his lost life. I have something that Ron lost. I find it. It's his animal wandering the street. That's the case that the mission would give. Right? And I, I bring him into my home. So I vowed not to get any benefit from him. I didn't vow not to give him any benefit. So it's totally fine for me to take care of his animal and return it to him. However, the Gemara and the Zarim raises a, they call it procedure of Yosef, the following scenario. Let's say I'm taking care of Ron's which he lost. And returning a lost animal is? A mitzvah. Good? Yeah? Shabbat is that? Now, at the very same time that I have his donkey in my backyard, grazing happily, a poor person comes and knocks on my door and wants me to give him money. Also a mitzvah, giving charity. So Rav Yosef causes the following idea. Maybe I don't have to give the guy money who came to my door. Because that's a mitzvah. Taking care of one's animals. I'm already both sex I'm already doing one mitzvah, so I don't have to do the second mitzvah. In that case, if I were to be able to get out of giving charity to the guy who came to my door because I'm taking care of Ron's animal, I'm then getting benefit from Ron indirectly because I'm watching his animal, and therefore I don't have to give charity. And that's where the whole case of the Gemara and the Dharm comes up, right? Am I or am I not? Does that count as getting benefit from him because watching his animal prevents me from giving charity to the poor person? I'll leave you to sort of you know, think about that case. I feel like right, you're not going to approve of that one. Um, but, but that's actually what Tosuot says. Tosuot says if you were actively involved in taking care of the animal, then maybe yes. Because then the, the mitzvah of Hashavah the mitzvah of returning a lost item, dictates that you can't just like, you know, I can't just like leave your donkey in my backyard to start right out to feed it, I have to take care of it, etc., until it's returned to you. Then I'm actively involved in the mitzvah. But just the fact that it's hanging out in my house or in my backyard does not count as those for Tosfer, that's in the same category as wearing feet, wearing to It's only when you're actively involved in a mitzvah that you're exempt from another. So he takes this concept and he applies it in a very specific way, right? which I think um, you know, maybe fits a lot better in some people, right? Because okay, it makes more sense if you're actively involved. If doing one mitzvah includes really, you really feel like well, I can't do another mitzvah because I'm involved in mitzvah A. So fine, but otherwise you should try to do both. So, just taking a step back for a second. So, what does that mean about mitzvah? What does that mean about our approach to mitzvah? If we want you to do two or more whenever possible, what are we saying about mitzvah? Or what are we saying about to do? Because responsible for one doesn't mean we're not responsible for the other. We're responsible for both at the same time. Okay, you're responsible for both at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to say it, right? Just the fact that you're doing one doesn't mean you're not responsible for the other because when I think about my responsibility for mitzvot, I feel like for toast I'm really going to see it as a 613-item checklist. 
And my goal is to check off as many as possible. So, okay, I'm doing number 10 on the checklist. If I can also do number 11, I should, because I want to get in as many as possible. My responsibility, another way of saying it, my responsibility is to do as many things as I can to get as much of that melachah done as I possibly can. Yeah. I have a question. Some people, when they learn to teach Torah, they can't be disturbed. Ah, we're not going to talk about Torah yet. That's lost class. Oh. It's a very interesting test. No, it's a problem for you. Yeah, it, oh. I mean, any of these things, right, if you feel like you're really involved, is a problem. Um, but that's what Tosfot says. And again, I think this approach is about, so you're trying to get as many things done as possible. You want to maintain concentration in some way, but only if it's something that you really have to focus on. And Tosfot's kind of a realist about what takes your attention and what doesn't take your attention. Look at the Rambam, not directly commenting on, well, commenting on the concept, but not directly on this mission or the Gemara. Um, so, source number five. The Rambam starts by talking about an idea in Pirkei Avot, that in Ethics of the Fathers, that um, you have to be as careful with a mitzvah that you consider to be minor as with a mitzvah whose severity is made clear. And ring a bell, we talked about this earlier. Right? In this example, where it's a dead body in Pesach, talks about Pesach being a really big deal mitzvah, right? And David told us that right, dealing with a dead body is also a really big deal mitzvah. We talked about, you know, bigger mitzvah and smaller mitzvah, which I think is a concept that we all use, uh, but we all have, you know, maybe we wouldn't all agree on which fall into which categories. I think we all have sort of an instinctive idea about what's a big deal mitzvah and what's a more minor mitzvah. Um, and the Rambam says, with negative mitzvah, that works, because you know the punishment. Some of the don't do's in the Torah have more intense punishment and have less intense punishment. But Rambam says that with positive mitzvot, it doesn't work. We don't know. We don't know We don't know what reward you get from doing positive mitzvot. Um, and so you can't have that kind of sliding scale. You can't weigh the relative value of mitzvot. Um, and the part that I bolded it would be Dehayi Karamru, Ha'otik Mitzvah Pajamah Mitzvah, when you're in that mitzvah moment, okay, you're doing mitzvah A, and the opportunity for mitzvah B comes your way. You can't make a decision. You can't make an informed decision because you actually don't know which is important, which is more important. You might think you know, but Rambam's here to tell you you don't really know. And so you can't possibly stop doing one and do the other one. Now, what would Rambam say that you both have? Do you think? Good question. <laughs> Good question, right? That's very, that's, uh, so on the one hand, Rambam doesn't talk about doing both simultaneously, right? He doesn't even present that as an option. On the other hand, so so maybe you would say, I'll follow up on that first one, maybe he is basically agreeing with Tosfo. Right? Maybe Rambam would say, sure, as long as you can do both without losing focus, go ahead. But if you're going to lose focus on the first to do the second, that's when you can't do it. In which case, that would be more or less but it's interesting that in support of this idea that you don't know which is more important, Rambam invokes this idea of being involved in one mitzvah exactly from another Because he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, you know, well, you do both until you can't anymore. Osek the mitzvah pasar and the mitzvah sounds more like you don't sound. So Rambam's a little bit of a question mark, uh, but I do think there's this idea for the Rambam, right, sort of reminding us, maybe you really are supposed to just keep doing one mitzvah and not stop for the second. And I would suggest that that Rambam also has a to-do list, but maybe with a different, um, his to-do list looks different, right? Maybe there's one item on the Rambam's to-do list, and that item is do mitzvah. And we'll see other regions on the Rambam's to-do list, right? If the item on your to-do list is do mitzvah, 
So, you're doing a mitzvah. Right? And as long as I'm doing a mitzvah, maybe I don't have to switch which one I'm doing because it doesn't matter. The thing that I'm trying to get done is to be involved in mitzvah always. And it's not about having 613 things to check off. It's about being involved in mitzvah and making sure that you are involved in mitzvah. It's another perspective, and we'll see it reflected in some of the other sources. Look at source number six. This is Iran, uh, a, a Spanish common uh, authority um, writing the riff, but it brings the riff, but that's fine. Um, so he also discusses this rule and also figures, you know, what at least some of you figured, which is this is not going to work as a rule. This idea of being involved in one mitzvah, exempting you from another mitzvah, is not going to work unless you qualify it in some way. Um, and so what he says is the, the, the bigger, bolded section. We learn that anyone who's busy with God's work, the Torah does not obligate that person to extend effort and fulfill other things out, even though it is possible. So now we're going to get even more subjective. So I told you it's very easy, right? If, if one mitzvah is totally passive and you can easily do another one, then go ahead. You should do both. The Ron says, okay, but like, Gerda, um, you were saying before about people who are not good at multitasking, right? So for me, maybe it's really easy to do two things at once because I'm so used to it, right? I can do this, then I can do that. No big deal. I haven't. Ex- I don't feel that I'm expending extra effort. But what if you feel that okay, I could do both things at once? I could. I could force myself, but I wouldn't have to really push myself, right? It's going to be like a strain on my mental energy. It's going to be a strain on my mental concentration. So the Rav says, in that case, you don't do both. You do both, but only if you can do it without expending extra effort. So maybe the really passive thing. Wearing the seat and also dotting. Wearing fillin and learning Torah. Those two things you can do at the same time. But you know, caring for one person and caring for another person where they both should take your time, attention, concentration, mental focus, maybe you can't do both of those two things at once. Right? Maybe you can only do the same where you focus on one thing and if anything is going to detract from that focus, you don't do the second thing. And sort of sort of similarly, uh, well actually you know, that one. Um, that's, that's the wrong thing. If it's going to detract from your focus, then you're not going to be able to do both. In which case, right, the Ron also has a to-do list with lots of things on it, but you know, the Ron has like a note on the side of the to-do list right, that when you're doing these things, at least some of them, you have to have a certain amount of focus. As I mentioned earlier, focus or kavanah, attention, is something that I want to come back to. Um, the question of when it applies and how it applies. Look at one more of the Rishonim. We'll look at um, we'll look at Orthorura. We'll look at some more. Um, source number seven. So the Orthorura also goes through the Gemara. I'm not taking you through all the cases. The question of uh, what, what is the Gemara? What? Seven. What is he? It's a Sefer Halacha. Yeah. Minhag Halacha. Yeah. So the Orzorua says, if you are, if you're doing one mitzvah and you're busy with that mitzvah and you can't do a second mitzvah, this is the bolded line, a ma'ister crowd of mitzvah, so my tummy is letting the mitzvah show a second mitzvah, a second mitzvah It's really the case, it's the case that the is discussing, it's really the case where you're busy with a mitzvah. You're, you've got mitzvah preoccupation, you're busy in that mitzvah. And the Gemara is coming to teach you that you can't do a second mitzvah simultaneously. The Orzorua is like, not to like upset anybody or anything, but I don't think you needed the Gemara to teach you this. I actually think my, my grandmother had like a Yiddish saying about this, something about like two 
people, to one person not being able to dance at two weddings simultaneously. I don't know if any of you speak Yiddish, but she used to say that in Yiddish, I don't exactly know how. Yeah. Um, right, so like, you don't need, you shouldn't need a verse, you shouldn't need a piece of Talmud to teach you that you can't be in two places at once. That, my friends, we all know on some level, even if we pretend not to sometimes. That's what the Urza is saying. You shouldn't need a verse to teach you that you can't do two things simultaneously. Let me be the first to tell you, you can't actually do two things simultaneously in many cases. So the Urza Ruth says, that can't be what the Gemara is teaching us. Instead, this is the second bold part, some of you are not going to like this. The Orzimura says, the Gemara is coming to teach you that even when you could do both, you shouldn't. This is the decree of the king. When you should, you should not. Okay? Even though you could fulfill both of them, the Torah exempts you, and this is a royal decree. Could you do both at once? You want to tell me you're going to multitask him? That's lovely. But when God made your to-do list, God had a very specific idea in mind. I'm being a little bit overly literal, but I really think this is what the Orzo is telling you. right? The, these things are meant to be done serially. They're meant to be done one at a time. And again, we're going to come back to this question of Kavanah and attention. You're meant to be focused on one at a time. You're not meant to be doing things at once. So is the idea of Osek Mitzvah, Pachar, and Mitzvah, that you're exempt from one Mitzvah when you're doing another, is that counterintuitive to you? Orzo Rose is great. It's meant to be counterintuitive. It's there out now. It's this is what God has decided. This is how you're meant to observe mitzvah. One at a time. And when you would say, oh, but wait, this other mitzvah is pulling me? Nope. you got to stick with the first. It's there out now. It's a really interesting perspective, right? It's a really different perspective. It gives you an answer to the why, right? Why have this rule? And it's also a very sweeping application. You, you can't do two, but you can drop, what about dropping one to do two? Ah, that is really interesting, right? He doesn't speak about that. Although, it's, I, I think he would say probably not, right? Because it's okay with the you can't leave it yet. Or he does, does it, uh, just reading his, is why would you leave one of the you're involved in and involve yourself in sticking this, but even in my name, should not be one of those services? Right. So I think the question is, what if you could arrange to do, well, I don't know if that was your question, actually, right? Like, if you could arrange to do this serially, but you shouldn't do right? You shouldn't leave behind that info to do the other one. There's yeah. a contradiction, because when I interrupt the people to call well, they say they can't be interrupted to talk to me, but yet what Moshe Feinstein did exactly that. When he was interrupted learning, he would actually attend to the person Right, so I'll, I'll say, I'll say two things. So number one, right, we're still only in the stage of three show notes, so we're not, we're not going to deal with real life scenarios quite yet. You're not quite there yet, right? And then again, keep in mind the question of how exactly we apply this. We're going to have to come back to it, especially as regards learning Torah. Right? And to give you a little sneak peek, right, to, to start thinking this through a little bit. Um, remember, I said right, sukkah is meant to be you're obligated to in when? When you're obligated to be in sukkah. Okay, great. Just check it. Right? So what's the one we think? Okay? When are you obligated? So, right, so in terms of thinking about priorities, right, if I asked you again about this rule, right, you might have told me, well, Sukkot, like, when that mitzvah comes about, I feel kind of strongly about it because it's only one week out of the year. Right? It's a different feeling than the mitzvah that you're obligated in every day. When are you obligated in learning Torah? Every day. Every day? Tell me more. Not just every day, but when during the day? Anyone? Morning. Also, what else? When you get up. Also, what else? So you're actually obligated on learning Torah all the time. 
It's actually it's a funny joke, and the Gemara, I think the Gemara has an amazing sense of humor, it's the Gemara, I think actually in a few places, says, like, when are you allowed to do things that aren't like Torah? The Gemara is specifically talking about learning about secular subjects. So the Torah, the, the Torah itself says, you have to learn Torah day and night. So if you can find a time that is neither day nor night, which I sometimes feel when I get a lot of stuff done, right, then you can learn secular studies. But otherwise, you're out of luck because Torah is an obligation all the time, which makes Torah study a really interesting test case for this rule of and we will talk about it. I want to look at one more, um, one last thing before I let you go. Um, just, just to see, because it is sort of unbelievable, I think, in some ways. Um, look at source number 10. Just straight after Shofanara. Reviews of Karo, so a kind of, you know, basis for Sakhalaha, Sakhalaha in action for the way the law actually is. It's really, it's practically a quote from our Gemara. The writers of Tulin and Mizuzo, them and their agents and their agents' agents, etc., all those who are involved in God's work, are exempt from putting on Tulin all day, except at the time of Shema and Tulin. Okay, so they're exempt except for when they're not. Um, and the Ramah says, the Ramah, Moshe Israel, the Ashkenazi gloss on the Shulchanara, says, even at the time of Shema and Tulin, if they need to work then, they can. We don't make them stop for Shema and for putting on Tulin. For all who are involved in the mitzvah are exempt from another mitzvah if one needs to expend effort to do the next one. But if one can do them as one without effort, one should do both. And so if you want like a, a bottom line halakha, of course, the bottom line is never the bottom line, and we're going to test the bottom line. Um, but if you wanted a starting point for a bottom line halakha, I would say it's this. And if people debate who exactly, which of the Rishon and Nirmah is actually possible, like which of the earlier of and Nirmah is really supporting, but that's, we can talk about that um, another time. Um, but the Ramah says, could you look at once easily without expending extra effort, which is the phrase we saw earlier, then you should. But if you can't, then you have to stick with the one you're doing. Right? Like, as we saw, you can't put aside one to do the other. Maybe, again, going back to the Ramah's formulation, you don't know which is more important. Right? It's really hard to make a priority list with positive mitzvot. So if you're doing one mitzvah, you can't leave aside that mitzvah. If doing the second mitzvah would cause you to leave aside that first mitzvah, you can't pause for that second and again, what exactly the worldview here is, um, so it depends which of the Rishonim is really following, but clearly there's an idea that it's not just about getting through all the things on the list, right? It's not just about getting the maximum number of things done. Because I think if it were, then we'd have to say, well, you know, cram it all in, do your best, right? Do like, um, you know, there are like exercises you can do to like improve your focus, right? You can focus on some of the, I did like some Googling before this class, right? Like you can find all these books like, Multitask for success, right? How to do 10 things at once and really get them done, right? I'm just going to finish up and then I'll take questions. Right, so, like, we could have gotten that way, right? We could see Judaism as a religion of, you know, cramming in as many things as possible, and maybe in some ways it is, right? But I was supposed to pass your minimus, but as a way of saying, no, it's not how we do mitzvah. There's a qualitative factor, first of all, there is an issue of focus, right? There is an issue of tiredness and mitzvah, and we're going to take that seriously and say that, okay, maybe sometimes you do two things at once, some of our mitzvahs are truly in that passive category, but you don't always get to do two things at once, even if you kind of want to, right? Even if you have that thought, I really think I could, like, I could manage this one also, right? I think I should, because they're both important, right? They're both mitzvahs, and I've been trained to believe that they're both important and maybe even equally important. Nonetheless, you can't always stop the one mitzvah for the other mitzvah, you can't always set aside the first priority for the second, even if the second feels equally or more important. How exactly to apply that idea and how it fits in with this idea of concentration, we will explore more next time. But it seems it depends upon the person. If you have the capacity to
to do two, you can do two. And if you don't have the capacity to do two, then you do one. So it depends upon the person. Maybe. I think the question of um, how much depends on the individual person versus the individual mix-up is interesting. Um, most, most of the time, I think that the sources are assuming that it depends on the mix-up and not on the person. But, but sometimes you get into this more subjective language, right? Like when Orzuru is speaking, also, sometimes I do feel like there, there's some amount of subjectivity about the person, but I also feel like there's an element of expectations, meaning Tosuo clearly expects that when you're wearing tzitzit that you not say, I'm so involved in this mitzvah that I can't do something else. And I feel like it's not beyond, you know, I've met people who are religious in all sorts of interesting ways in my life, as I'm sure you all have too, and it's not you know, beyond the tale to me that someone would say, wait, I'm really focused on this mitzvah of tzitzit. Right, but Tosuo would say no day. So you're right? saying it's objective. I'm saying I think there is an objective element. I think there is an enforceable element as well as a layer of subjectivity.